All right, if you guys want to take your Bibles now, we're going to transition and uh, jump into the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to have Matt uh, read our text. So if you want to turn to the book of Nehemiah uh, chapter 8 and stand with us as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. All right, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. This is God's Word for the Crossing Church this morning. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those people who were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maziah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maziah, Kalaita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God, Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all the towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel, till that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is God's word. Thank you, Matt. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Dear Lord, your, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Let it do its work in our hearts and in our minds and our lives today. And what we have not, please give us. What we know not, please teach us. And we are not what we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys, go have a seat. How about a hand for Matt reading that passage of Scripture? <laughs> Any of you guys, ladies having babies, you know there's some great names in this text you can go ahead and pick out for your baby. And if you do, I'll give you a hundred bucks. <laughs> you already did. Ezra, that's right. But 
he's already born. So, <clears throat> all right. Hey, I got a I got a question for you guys this morning. How many of you guys thought about meditated on revival this week? Raise your hand. Yeah, good. I, I joined you. I wasn't thinking about revival either until I started studying Nehemiah chapter eight. In Nehemiah chapter eight, we come face to face with the revival. Uh, with a revival. A revival is an extraordinary work of the Lord where, he's, where the God is saving and convicting and growing His people. And the Lord has been doing that consistently throughout history. We, we see it began with really Abraham and then went through Isaac and Jacob and then Joseph. We, we saw it with Samuel. We see it with King Jehoshaphat and King Hezaziah and King Josiah. We, we see it in the New Testament with Jesus and then the Acts and Peter and the Apostles. We see it with Paul. Then we see it in our own country. Well, first we see it in Europe with the Great Reformation with Martin Luther. And then we see it moved over to our country with the Great Awakening, which had an incredible influence on the founding and how our country has been governed. And then we see the Second Great Awakening. And then we see the Jesus movement in the 70s and the 80s. And now today we look to South America and Africa and we see that God is doing extraordinary things through the Gospel and creating a revival. And it's my prayer this morning that here in Colorado, that here in Fort Collins, that here at the crossing, that God would do something extraordinary through you and through me and through the preaching of His Word, His Gospel. That He would work revival through us. You see, this is what we need to know. God is always working. He's always saving. He's always redeeming. He's always reconciling people and He's always growing His church. When it comes to a revival, there's an extra measure of grace. There's an extra, uh, extra extraordinary thing happening where He doubles, triples, quadruples what He's doing in a very specific way. And this is what we see in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 7 and Nehemiah chapter 8. We've actually turned the book in Nehemiah. Or turned the corner in Nehemiah. Not turned the book. Turned the corner in Nehemiah. Uh, the first six chapters are about Nehemiah has this vision to rebuild the wall to protect the people of God. And then in, first, in chapter 7 through the end of chapter 13, now he is rebuilding the people of God. And so my prayer, again, is for the crossing church, for you and the me to start to think about, to start to pray for, to start experiencing revival as Nehemiah and Ezra did in his day. Pray for, it's now our turn. It's our turn for the Lord, by His Spirit, informed by His Word, to present and create revival through me and you. Quickly we see, let's look at verse uh, Nehemiah chapter 7. Quickly we see that revival begins with people. Now we're just going to rip through chapter 7 because there's a bunch of more names that would take us probably four days to read. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1 says this, Now when the wall had been built, I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed, mainly around the temple. And I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So what we see here is now that the walls are being rebuilt, now what Nehemiah has to do is if he wants revival, he's got to regather the people. And as governor, he is now has to set up this civil leadership structure because there was none. They've been ruled by the surrounding rulers of the day and ruled and exploited by wicked men of Sambiah, Tobiah, and Geshem, as we've read. Therefore, now that the walls have been built, Nehemiah is now appointing godly men, God-fearing, faithful men, men of character and integrity to lead the people of God. And men who would still have to protect the people of God, from the enemies around as we see in verse 3. But here's the main thought is in verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. To have revival, you must have people. And this was the problem. And no houses had been rebuilt. Then verse 5, Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book the book of Ezra, of the genealogies of those who came up first, and I found what was written. 
We see here that God works through Nehemiah again by putting this burden on his heart. In chapter 1, we saw the Lord put a burden on Nehemiah's heart to, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Here, now the burden is to rebuild the people of God. This has been put on Nehemiah's heart by God. It's a difficult task. Hey, listen, rebuilding the walls, easy. Rebuilding people, hard. And Nehemiah now sets this in motion. And he begins with, well, how am I going to do this? Well, he has a thought. The Lord asks, hey, let's look to the first exiles that returned with Zerubbabel in Ezra chapter 2. This list in uh, verses 5 through 69 is basically the same exact list that, that is in Ezra chapter 2. These are the first people, the first exiles to come out of captivity from Babylon back to Jerusalem. This is the list of names for Nehemiah, the list of people to begin the repopulation of Jerusalem and Israel with right here. So he recognizes so this is what he does. And then he also needs not only does he need people, but he also, again, needs this infrastructure. He's got to build houses. He's got to build streets and roads. He's got to make marketplaces so people can come and, and buy food and, and create business. And so we read in Nehemiah 7, 70-72, after all the names, we see the generosity of God's people that give to this work. Not only did they use their time and their talents to build the wall, now they're using their treasure to build the people of God. And they give generously. One estimated in today's uh, currency, they would have been given over $5 million to begin this work. This is what chapter 7 is. Revival begins with people. They have been in captivity for decades and decades, and now the tide has turned, and it's time to rebuild the people of God so that the kingdom of God can move forward. And that takes us now to chapter 8. And second, we see now it begins with people, but revival begins with the people understanding the Word of God. Revival begins with the people, you and me, understanding the Word of God. Nehemiah 8, 1-8. through You see, there's a number of ways that we can build or gather a crowd. There's a, there's a number of ways that we can build a business. But there's only one way to build a church. And that way is to preach the Gospel, is to preach the Word of God to the people of God. We see in this in verses 1-8, through eight, we see this word understanding four times. So the people would understand, so the people would understand, so the people would understand, and finally the people understood God's Word. That's what revival begins. It begins with the people of God understanding who God is, what His desire is for us, and the Gospel. So this is the foundation of the church. This is the foundation of the people of God. And this is also the foundation of true revival. If you look throughout history, true revival is always rooted and grounded on, on the proclamation of God's Word. The Gospel. Unapologetic. Preaching the Gospel of the, the bad news first, that you're a sinner, and then the good news that Christ came and died and rose again for your salvation. And those who by faith put their faith in Him will be saved. This is the foundation of revival. Look at verse 1. And it said, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Well, who are all the people? Verse 3 tells us. It's all the men, it's all the women, it's all the children. It's everyone who has understanding. And this would have been about 50,000 people. As you look back to the end of chapter 7, you see there's about 42,000 plus uh, uh, Israelites. And then you see the servants, there are about 7,300 plus. It's about 50,000 people gathered. That's a big group. That's like half of Fort Collins. Or maybe a third of Fort Collins now. It was a half of when I first moved here. It's about 150 now. So it's about a third of Fort Collins. It's like we would fill up Canvas Stadium there on CSUs and have some, and have some overflow. It's a lot of people. But I'll, here's what's important. Who called the meeting? Who called for Ezra and Nehemiah? They didn't call the meeting. Who called the meeting? Look at verse 1. And they, the people, called the meeting. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. That's the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That the Lord had commanded them. That's an incredible thought. Think about it. 50,000 people gathered. Nehemiah and Ezra probably, you know, sleeping in their homes. All of a sudden they say, what's, what's the rumbling going on out there? All of a sudden they see 50,000 people and they say, Ezra, I want you to bring the book. 
I mean, you can almost see this crowd, like we're in a big stadium, right? And you hear a crowd, or you're at a conference, and you're, you're screaming for the band, or you're screaming for your team. The people were screaming for the Bible. Bring the book. Bring the book. Bring the book. I would love it that all the crossing shows up at my house one day, one Sunday, and just says, Aaron, bring the book. Bring the book. Bring the book in my street. What kind of testimony or witness would that be to my neighbors around? I'd have some work to do, right? I'd have some work to do. But can you hear the excitement? Listen, they just saw the Lord rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days, in under two months. It, it, was, it lay desolate for, for decades upon decades before that. Nehemiah shows up and says, hey, I have a plan. They believe the plan, they build the plan. And the Lord, now they're hungry for the Lord. They're like, what have we been missing out on all these years? We want God. And we understand that there was a book back in the day, the Torah that the uh, people were led by and read, that Moses wrote, bring the book, bring the book, bring the book. You see, they understand now the importance of God's Word. They want to know more about God. They want to know about His desires, His plans, His commandments for their lives. So they say, bring the book, because they understand when you open up this book, you open up the mouth of God. When you open up the Word of God, you open up the mouth of God. And He speaks primarily to you and to me and to the people of Nehemiah through this book. And that's what they hunger for. That's what they long for. James Boyce pointed this out. He's one of my favorite pastors. He's passed away. But he talks about the, the Scottish churches have this guy called the Beatle. And this is how they start their, their, their gatherings, their services. They have this guy. Everyone sits down and all of a sudden this guy, the Beatle, brings the Bible up to the pulpit and opens it up to the passage and what there's going to be read today. That'd be kind of cool to have a beetle, huh? Who wants to be a beetle in here? Right? All right, Beck. And again, it's just, it, it shows that this is God's Word. God wrote this Word to, to guide and direct His people. And revival comes through understanding this Word. Now we see in verse 2, we're, we're, we're introduced to Ezra. We're introduced to Ezra for the first time in the book of Nehemiah, in the first book. He was a contemporary of, of Nehemiah, as we know. In the Jewish Bible, both Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. But here we're, we're, we're again, introduced to him. Because at this point, it's just been all of Nehemiah. He's the one been leading, guiding, directing the people of God to rebuild this walls. And now, he is passing the torch. He's passing the torch to, Nehemiah, uh, to Ezra because he understands something. He understands his abilities and his qualifications. Nehemiah isn't the Bible guy. Ezra's the Bible guy. Nehemiah is the builder. He's the GC. He's the general contractor. He was the one that was praying for the people of God. He's the one that prepared the people of God. And he's the one that preceded the people of God to help them build the wall. And now he understands like, hey, my job is done. Now I need to pass it off to the Bible guy. I need to pass it off to the, to the priest, to the pastor, the one who's going to rebuild the people spiritually. And so he passes it off to Nehemiah. We see his humility. We see his wisdom. And this is how the people of God should function. This, this is how the church should function. The church is not built around one man. The church is built around men, women, and children who are using their gifts to further the kingdom of God. Some of us have teaching gifts, some of us have serving gifts, some of us have giving gifts. And as we all come together and use those gifts, the kingdom of God flourishes and the people of God are built up. And this is what we see in Nehemiah. Again, Nehemiah, in his humility, turns the keys over to the pastor, to the priest, to the Bible guy, Ezra. And we see in Ezra 7.10, this, this is what Ezra has been designed for. This is what he's been made for. This is what he's gifted for. It says, for I, for I love to study the Word of God, to do the Word of God, and to teach the Word of God to the people of God. And so the torch has been passed. We see in verse 3 that Ezra gets up. The people chant. Ezra answers the bell. And he says in verse 3 at the end, it says, and the, all, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. That's an incredible, incredible statement. 50,000 people are attentive, are listening to Ezra preach the Word. They were focused. They were dialed in. They were listening to the books of Moses. And again, the books of Moses are 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now you know that the the Holy Spirit is moving. You know there's something extraordinary happening when the people are attentive to the book of Leviticus. You know what I'm saying? And not only the book of Leviticus, but notice verse 3. It says from early morning, literally the break of dawn, to midday to noon. So for six hours they were out there. For six hours they were so hungry for God's Word, to hear from God, that they woke up early. And for six hours they stood and listened to Ezra preach the Word. And what we see in, 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 in verses 4-8, through eight, we see this scene. This scene. See if it, see if it reminds you of anything. In verse 4 it says that Ezra stood on a wooden platform And also there's probably a wooden pulpit there as well. And he opened the book. Now don't think Bible like this. They didn't have Bibles back then. They had scrolls. So he had had, had to open up the scroll, each individual scroll, and put it on a wooden pulpit. And then it says he preached from it. And it says, verse 5, and it says, as Ezra was above the people, he read from the book, he opened the Bible, and the people stood. From there he taught. Does 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 that remind you of anything? How about this morning? How about what we do each and every Sunday? This is what we do. In fact, when I planted the crossing some 12 going on 13 years, this this portion of Scripture helped inform on how we're going to set up our liturgy a little bit. I'm standing on a on a wooden platform. I have a wooden pulpit. I don't have scrolls, but I got God's Word. We open it. We teach from it. And then when we read it, just like we did a couple minutes ago, what do we do? We have the people, you and I, we stand. Why? To give honor to the Word. I'm a little bit above you guys right now. Why? Because we sit under the Word. It's what guides and directs us as God's Word. And then it goes on. Look, it goes on. Look, it says, and Ezra, Ezra had a teaching team. He had other men help him teach the Bible. Those were all the names that Matt read. He has 13 up on stage with him, and then he has another out in the, in the crowd. In verses 4 and then 7 through 8. Now the guys in the crowd in verses 7 through 8, again, we've got this massive crowd. We've got 50,000 people out there. Ezra's speaking. Now here's the other thing. Here's the other thing why they had to understand it and why they needed these other men out there. They needed these other men out there to translate because the Bible was written in Hebrew. Most of the people, if not all the people, didn't speak Hebrew. Even though they were Jews, they spoke Aramaic because that was the language of their captivity. And so they had individuals out breaking these men and families, uh, women and children, up into small groups. And Ezra would probably read and explain and then the people out there, the teachers would probably take these small groups and read and explain them. It says in the end of verse 8, it says they explained them so the people can understand that they gave sense to the Scriptures. They explained the text to the people. So he had this large gathering that also then broke up into smaller gatherings. And it wasn't just led by Ezra, but other men, other people that had the ability to teach the Word of God. Does that sound like anything that we do here? We come together and, and we give the explain it on Sundays and I give the open the book and those other men that we have, Rich and Daniel and Beck and other guys that come and share God's Word. But then throughout the week, we meet in smaller groups led by guys like Cyrus and Matt and other families to see that we there's nothing new under the sun. We are doing exactly what God has commanded Nehemiah to do. You see, this is how God builds His church. He builds His church through faithful men and women proclaiming the Word of God. This is what begins revivals. People gather, the book is open, and the Gospel is proclaimed. Then the Holy Spirit comes down and moves in the hearts of men, women, and children. This is how we build the people of God. And again, there's nothing hip about this. There's nothing new. If we want to have revival, we don't need to be clever. We don't need to invent a clever way to, to preach the gospel. We just need to be faithful. We just need to be faithful. Listen, Ezra, Ezra was there 13 years before Nehemiah. Again, his role was to preach. So for 13 years, think about it. Ezra preached. His ministry had the fruit of like Jeremiah. The walls were broken down. There weren't a lot of people listening, for, listening to Ezra. For 13 years he preached, but on this day, when he opened up his mouth, people couldn't get enough 
In fact, this day, 50,000 people gathered and told Ezra, Ezra, bring the book. We want to hear from you. Ezra was faithful. All he did was show up every, every day and show up and preach the Word. And on this day, not only did he preach the Word, but the Holy Spirit visited on these people, changed their hearts, and gave them a hunger for God's Word. The greatest evangelist to ever live, at least in our lifetime, was probably Billy Graham. He had an extraordinary measure of grace upon his life. He went around the world. He, he was in like in 123 countries or something like that. For 70 years, he preached the Gospel. He preached the Gospel for 70 years. There's an estimated that he that 2.2 billion people heard him preach the Gospel. Live, TV, radio. 215 million heard him live. Heard him personally. I remember I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I forget what year it was, but I heard Billy Graham was coming to Albuquerque. I was already a Christian. But you know what? I was like, man, i got to go listen to that dude preach. There's something special. God has His hand on that man. i got to go listen to that guy preach. You know what? I went to the pit. 18,000 people. Tried to get tickets. Sold out. Couldn't. Sold out in the first like three hours. 215 million people heard him preach the gospel live. And 2.2 million responded to the gospel. God used Billy Graham to proclaim the gospel. Who, who in here has heard or seen or been to a Billy Graham crusade? Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, a lot of us in here, right? Uh, what's so special about a Billy Graham crusade? How entertaining is it? Does he got the latest smoke machines, the latest lights going on, the latest, the coolest country, you know, the coolest uh, new worship tunes? No, for 70 years, basically, he prayed. He had a guy give up and lead us in hymns. Now, the music did change a little bit as the times changed. 1960 was a little bit different in 1980, right? But the one thing that didn't change was the gospel, was the message that he preached. Christ crucified, buried, raised, and dead. Nothing extraordinary about it. Nothing new, nothing hip. Just a good old gospel preached. And we saw through that man, 2.2 million people respond to the gospel. You see, that's what, who we are at the cross. And that's why every single week, what you see here in Nehemiah and with, through Ezra is what we call expository preaching. It, it's someone opening the book of God and going through portions of Scripture and explaining the text of God. And that's the main pillar of our, our Sunday morning gathering. That's the main pillar of our life group. It's the main pillar of our journey groups. Listen, prayer... Singing and fellowship are important, but they're not the most important. What's the most important is the proclamation of the Word of God. And it's explained in such a way that you understand it. Why? Because it's here where the power of God dwells. And what the Holy Spirit uses to impact and change your life and my life and those around us. They had a hunger and a passion for God's Word. They wanted the, God's Word to be read. They wanted God's Word to be explained. They wanted God's Word to be illustrated. And then they wanted God's Word to be applied and obeyed in their life. And that's our prayer today. The application of this passage for us today is this. Yes, we open and explain God's Word, but it's that we pray for revival. That we pray for a portion of the Spirit that will be put on you and me in our circles of influence. That we it would be our turn. It's our turn now to carry on the legacy of these faithful men and women who came before us that preached the gospel. It's our turn now. And let us pray that the, the Spirit of God would use us as we preach the Word of God to impact the people of God. Amen? Spend a little bit more time on that. We'll work through the next ones. Number three, a revival leads to rejoicing as we understand God's Word. In Nehemiah 8.6 and 9-12. through 12. Look at 8.6. And Ezra... Bless the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen and Amen. And they lifted up their hands and they bowed their heads and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What do we see here? We see here in Nehemiah that the people respond to the proclamation, the preaching of the Word of God through joyful worship. From what they just heard. And, and, and and they respond by saying, Amen. They respond by raising their hands. They respond by bowing their heads. 
They, they hear the truth of God. It impacts their hearts so much that they respond physically and verbally. This is what happens when God's Word gets a hold of your heart. When you understand God's Word, when you understand the Gospel, it does something. It changes your heart and then it propels you to worship through your words and through your actions. And again, get this. They're not singing at this point. They're not singing. Typically, we, we, we you know, our, our expressions of clapping and raising our hands and is through singing. They're, they're, not, they're, they're doing this during the preaching of the message. This is an area I think we can grow in a little bit, don't you? Amen. Amen. I'm with you. I'm more of a reserved guy. Now, you guys know me. I'm, I'm, I'm a passionate guy, but I'm more of a reserved guy. And it's, it's taken me a while to start raising my hands and shouting amen. But I think we can all grow in this area. We can all grow expressing our faith through our emotions and physical responses to the Word preached when it's preached. I know many of you guys hear the Word preached here, the Gospel preached, the principles of God preached, and inside your soul you're like, amen, amen, amen. It's okay to say Amen out loud. I love when I get to go preach at uh, other, other, uh, other, other churches and other events. You know, sometimes I get some of our charismatic brothers and sisters in the house. You know what I'm saying? And I'm preaching and I hear, Amen, Amen. Preach it, brother. Preach it, preacher. You know, and I love that. I love that response. And they're, they're lifting up their hands like, yes, and like giving me, you know, spiritual high fives as I'm preaching. It's okay. You guys want to do that. I'm all for that. I used to play baseball. I used to hear people chirp at me all day long. You know, it's okay. I'll still stay focused. One thing you didn't want to hear is like, oh, Lord, help that brother out, right? You didn't want to hear that. <laughs> didn't want to hear that. But I, th- I think this is an area where, hey, guys, I want you guys to hear me. We can grow in this. Now, I don't want it to be mechanical. I want you to be you, how God has wired and created you to express yourself. But he is, He's given you emotions as a human. He, he talks throughout Scripture that people raised their hands. They knelt down. They clapped. They bowed. They said, Amen. It's okay to do this. I don't want it to be manufactured. I don't want it to be fake. I want it to come from your heart. I want it to come from your heart. But we know that out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? We can maybe also say out of the, out of the heart, the mouth worships. The hands are raised. Psalm 13 says, My heart rejoices in your salvation. Mary in Luke 1 said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my soul rejoices in God. And that came out of her. Think about it this way. If I tell my wife, well, I, I have told my wife, this is, not if, if, this is not like a hypothetical situation. I love my wife with all my heart, all my soul, and all my strength. 20... Seven years ago? <laughs> oh, this is ab-libbing right now, so I got to watch myself. 27 years. You know, we were married in 95, 27 years ago, right? Right, 2002. We just celebrated two, 2022. 22. All right, Lord have mercy. Thank you. That's what I'm talking about. All right, but 27 years ago, I told Rita at the altar, I love you with all my heart. And what would, well, how would she feel if the last 27, I never expressed that to her physically or emotionally? I never said, I love you. I never held her hand or hugged her. I never kissed her. I never served her. But I said 27 years ago, hey, I love you with all my heart. What difference does it make? And I think we can apply that to worship. Again, when you hear God's Word preached, you're convicted you feel the joy of the Lord. This is rejoicing. They're rejoicing. These people haven't heard the word preached in decades. They hear Ezra open up and they're like, Amen, Amen. They're raising their hands. They're bowing down. They're worshiping the Lord. Because that's what the joy of the Lord does. It moves you. It moves you. Amen? Can I get a hallelujah? Oh, we're going to get charismatic up in here now. All right. All right, verse 9. Keeps on going the rejoicing. Look at that, verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribes, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, 
For all the people wept as they heard the word of the law. There was a conviction there as they heard God's word being preached. They're like, oh man, we're not, we're not doing the things we're called to do. And so all of a sudden there's a, a conviction over here. Then verse 10. Here, here's the gospel in the Old Testament, verse 9 and 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Again, here's the, the gospel in the Old Testament. And, 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 why, and why this response of joy and not grief? Look at verse 22. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You see, understanding God's Word leads to joy and rejoicing. First, they, they might convict you. There might be some sorrow. There might be some weeping. But ultimately, they point us to the joy of the Lord where there is rejoicing. And here's what's very important. We, we need to look at verse 2 and 14 in that word seventh month. The seventh month is really important here. The context in which the Word of God is coming forward and the providence of God. The seventh month in the Jewish calendar was the month of Tishar, which is a festival month. In fact, this was the most important festival month of all the, all the months in the Jewish calendar of Tishri. They had the three most important festivals. The, fifth, the Feast of the Trumpets, which we probably see here. The Day of Atonement. Both the Feast of the Trumpet and the Day of Atonement, which are alluded to, I believe, in, in verses 9 and 10 here. And then the Feast of Tabernacles was explicitly we'll look at in 13 and 18. But this is what's happening. This is what the people of God are responding to. And this is why they're rejoicing. They hear that they haven't been keeping the Word of God. Therefore, there's a conviction. There's a guilt. And, 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 and probably what's happening is this happened on the very first day of this month, this, this, this festival of the trumpets, where they would spend the next 10 days until the 10th day, which would be the Day of Atonement. And, and what they're doing here is they're confessing and weeping, but then the teachers see this and they come alongside and they say, hey, it's good that you have a conviction about your sin. It's, it's a good that you're feeling the weight, you're mourning about your sin. But guess what? Rejoice. Why? Because the Day of Atonement is coming. And you need to rejoice. What's the Day of Atonement? That's the day of salvation for Israel in the Old Testament. That's the day where their sins would be covered. And so yes, you feel your sin, but rejoice because the Day of Atonement is coming. This is the good news in the Old Testament. They feel the weight of their sin, but it's preparing you for what's coming in ten days, the Day of Atonement, which is where their sins would have been covered and forgiven for the next year. One commentator put it like this. This is the Gospel as recorded in the Old Testament. He says, Do not weep for your sin because atonement is around the corner. Therefore, celebrate and rejoice with your neighbor with food and drink. This is what the teachers are reminding them of. They remind them of the Gospel. Yes, be again. Sorrowful for your sin, but atonement's coming. Therefore, rejoice. And so here's the deal. If Israel at this point is rejoicing, how much more shall we be rejoicing in the Gospel? We just studied the book of Hebrews, and we know that Hebrews says that this sacrificial system that they had, that they were doing, that they were being faithful to now, and starting, this is why this day was holy, because they were, again, reinstituting the, the ceremonial festivals of the day. That's why this is holy to the Lord. How much more do we understand that, hey, the, blo the blood of bulls and goats and lambs didn't take away the sin? But Jesus did. He was the perfect Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. This is why we rejoice. This is why we rejoice. We rejoice because we have the Bible. Without the Bible, we wouldn't have this hope. We wouldn't have this joy. Without the Bible, we'd look outside and we'd see a Creator, and we know there would be a Creator, but we wouldn't know the Creator. This is why the Scriptures are so important, because they give us the Creator. Not only do they tell us who the Creator is, but they tell us what substitutionary atonement is. They tell us what the Gospel is. And this is why they are rejoicing. So rejoice that we have the Bible because it reveals to us Jesus and the Gospel. That little phrase, I, would, I could spend a whole sermon on this, but just let me just highlight this. Cole did a great job in highlighting this in the opening. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Circle that little word, of. It's not joy in the Lord. There's other places where we say, hey, be joyful in the Lord. Absolutely. This says the joy of the Lord is your strength. Is whose strength? Your strength. 
Whose joy? The Lord's joy. This is the Lord's joy. There's a great Scripture in 1 Timothy 1.11. I can't wait to preach on it one day. But it says this, In the accordance with the glory of the Gospel of the blessed God. Or literally, in accordance with the Gospel of glory of the happy God. When you think of God, do you think of His essence of who He is as happy? As joy? As gladness? Always rejoicing? That's who He is. He is holy. He is love. He is righteous. But He's also happy. And it's that happiness that strengthens you and me. And in particular, that happiness at the essence, at the core, is the glory of the Gospel. His Son and what He has done for you and me. So if you want joy, you want rejoicing, you want the joy of the Lord in your life, you look to Jesus, you look to the Gospel. And and we know when we do that, what does that produce in us? It produces a joy. It produces a joy that is supernatural. It produces a joy that only those who are controlled, led, guided, and taught by the Spirit can feel and know and experience. This is the joy of the Lord. Finally, quickly, revival leads to obedience to God's Word. Uh, First, it takes people. It takes the Word proclaimed. We need to understand it. That understanding leads to rejoicing. And then this rejoicing leads to obedience to God's Word. Look at Ilhamiah 8, 13-18. On the second day, this is the next day now, the heads of the father's houses, the granddads, the papas, the males, <coughs> the dudes get together. Of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, they come together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the Word of God. Here's another Bible study. This is a small group Bible study. This is, this is, the man, this is man school. This is what we call man school. The men are getting together to do a Bible study with Ezra the next day. And end, as they're studying, look at verse 14. As they're studying the Scriptures, they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And so all of a sudden they come upon this thing. They're studying the Word, the men. And all of a sudden it talks about the booths, the, the, the festival of booths, the festival of tabernacles as also known. And so what we see here is the feast of booths or tabernacles was a seven-day feast that began in the 15th of the month of Tishri. And it was about a week long. And it was a week-long celebration of the people of God celebrating God's provision when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So what they would do is outside their homes, they would build these little booths, these little shelters outside their homes or on the rooftops with, with olive branches, with trees. And then they would go live in them for a week. And it would be a big festival, a big celebration, again, on what the Lord did while they were wandering in the wilderness. So the men are having a study. They, they come to this and they're like, man, we need to go do this. We need to go lead our families. We need to go lead our people and follow God's command. We need to obey God's Word here. And that's exactly what they do. Look at verse 16. So the people went out and bought them and brought them and made booths for themselves. Revival leads to obedience to God's words, to application of God's commands. We see this all over Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We are called to not only hear God's Word, understand God's Word, we're called to apply and obey God's Word. So what a Christian does, this is the, again the, the foundational pillars of revival. Application and obedience to God's Word. And look what, God, look what obedience leads to. Well, I think we tend to forget what obedience leads to, but we see in verse 17, what does it lead to? And there was very great sadness. Oh no. And there was very great rejoicing. Applying God's Word correctly, obeying God's commands leads to joy, leads to blessing, leads to rejoicing. Day by day, from the first day to the last day, they read from the book of the law. They kept the feast of the seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the Word. I love how one commentator sums it up. He sums it up this way. Every Bible should be bound with shoe leather. Every Bible should be bound with shoe leather, meaning that whenever you read it, whenever you study it, whenever you hear words God, when you ever hear the Word of God taught, you should understand it. And the next thing you should do is you apply it. You should apply it in your walk 
along this journey of life that you're in. Again, they're under the Old Covenant, celebrating all these festivals. We are not. So we don't need to celebrate the Feast of Booze. Some of us do because we love to go camping, right? We love to get our tents, go up to the mountains, and go camping. But that's not what this is. We live under the New Covenant. And the New Covenant has commands for us to follow. But they're all summed up under the one commandment, the great commandment, right? And the great commandment is about what? It's about love. To love God and to love our neighbor. That's what we're called to do. That's, how, that's a summary of what we are called to live and follow and do as Christians. We're to love. And we know that biblical love is an action. It propels us to do something. Romans 5 says that God demonstrates His love towards us that what? While we're yet sinners, He gave His life for us. Love propelled Him to go and do something, to sacrifice something for us, and that was His Son, Jesus. As those great theologians said, DC Talk, for those of us that were in the 90s know who that is, they said love is a verb. And that's right. Love is a verb. It's an action in Scripture. It's something that we do. 1 John 4, we looked at last week, says that we know that we love because God has first loved us. Now this is very, very important that you have to understand in your biblical framework. That God loves us, therefore we obey. God loves us, therefore we obey. It's not obey and then God loves us. God loves us and then we obey. That's the new covenant of grace. Obey God, then He will love you. That's law. That would never lead to joy and rejoicing. We know that we love God because He first loved us. And then for us to show God that we love Him, not out of, we, 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 walk, we want to walk into obedience. Jesus said this in John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And again, this keeping of commandments is not duty, it's delight. We're not trying to earn something, it's not duty. Again, we're not trying to earn God's love. We already got it. It's delight. We're, we're expressing our love towards Him by obeying His commands. And this is one of the, the joys of pastoring this church. This is one of the joys for me and Daniel and Rich and Joey and to lead this church because you guys understand this. You guys get this. We get to hear stories about you loving God. Loving others in this community and loving those that don't know Jesus. We get to see this in action. You guys hear God's Word preached. You, you understand it. And then you apply it. You obey it. And if I was to sum up your obedience, it would be love. It would be love. I love hearing stories about your love for God, your love for one another, and your Word. I, I love to hear stories how New believers are getting a hunger and a thirst for the Word of God. And, and you say, hey, can we meet? Can we study? Can we join a Bible study? Can we join a life group? we got to get the Word of God into us. I love to hear that hunger and that passion for God's Word from you. Not only from new believers, but also older believers. I love to hear how many of you guys are praying more because you've seen the example of Nehemiah in all these chapters. And you've been convicted. We know the Scripture says that we are to pray continuously. You're taking that to heart. You're, you're obeying that. I love how you ask for accountability for your sin and battling your sin. That you bring others into your battle, whether it's sexual, alcohol, or other substance, whether it's financial, wherever you are struggling. Hey, help. I need help. I love that. You know what I love even more? Is those who receive that text don't just go a scriptural bomb on you and then walk away. You say, I'm here for you. Let me roll up my sleeves. Let me come alongside you. Let me walk with you. Let me help you. Let me love you. Why? Because you understand the love of God towards you. I love hearing that. I love how some of you are building relationships in your, in your workplace or in the classroom. When your season of life you're building relationships with those who don't know Jesus so you have the opportunity to share Jesus. So they will experience revival in their own little heart. I love how some of you open up your homes to some people in this body. You have an extra spare room. You have a basement. Someone in here needs, 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 a, needs a room. You open up. Come on, live. Come live with us. 
I love how some of you do this with strangers, such as foster care. I love how, how people buy a house, refurbish the house, so they can serve single young moms. I love to hear stories how you guys are loving God, loving each other, and loving your neighbors. I love how you give your resources to those in need. I love how you send missionaries all over the world so the Gospel is proclaimed and people's lives are changed. I love how you support myself and the other pastors in this leadership team. So we can build up you, the body. Now we can build the Kingdom of God. I love pastoring this church because you are people who get the book. And not only do you get the book, you get the message of the book, the Gospel. And you obey it by loving God, loving neighbor, and loving those who don't know Jesus. One said this, kind of funny, as we finish up, the, the biggest dust storm in America would happen if everyone who owned a Bible would pick it up and open it. <laughs> right, we get this. But let's not be a people who contribute to that event. But let's be a people who pray for revival. Let's be a people that want to hear this book preached. Let's be a people that say, open the book so that we can understand the book. So that we can rejoice in the message of the book. And of the one that points to Christ. So that we can be convicted by the book. That we can apply the book. And that the Holy Spirit can move through this book in our lives. And not only in our lives, but the billions around the world. Can we pray for that? Can we start to think about revival from here on out and start to pray for that? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your, your revival in Nehemiah chapter 8 because it informs us of how revival begins and what the pillar of revival is. The pillar of revival is You speaking through Your Word. And so Lord, we pray for revival. First and foremost, in, in our own church, in our own hearts, and then that we would be used as by You empowered by Your Spirit, informed by Your Word to proclaim the good news of the Gospel to those who don't know it. And may You again just do an extraordinary work in the power of Your Spirit. And may we see revival in year 13 of the crossing just as Ezra saw in year 13 of his ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.